Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho, co-host Matt Cummings, and our guest, Mathen Black. We are live on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Call us live on air and have your opera voice heard. Again, that number is 847 866 All right, tonight, Mathen Black, a familiar voice on our show, is back in Chicago for a spell, visiting from New York City, where he now resides. He fills us in on what's happening in small-scale and storefront opera in the Rotten Apple. Then, Fantasy Fockball returns for a Fjordeligi face-off, when Oliver and Matt each pick a soprano to compare and contrast. Two sopranos enter, one soprano will leave. Mathan and I will be the judges. And at 9.40 p.m., it's the two-minute drill. Everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land and our hot takes on those stories. So, without further ado, Oliver Camacho, how are you? I'm good. I just want to say that thank you, George, for writing the, uh, you know, the introduction to the show. But we're going to call this a sister showdown today okay. and not a fear to face off okay. because we're actually going to hear a duet it's going to be like a tag team today so. it doesn't make it easier for me to say because yes. I really nailed it on the yes. intro and there. it's actually very exciting for you heterosexual men out there listening oh. to think about sisters getting in the ring together putting you know <laughs> Vaseline wrestling whatever that, this is not appropriate <laughs> <laughs> on that note welcome Math and <laughs> Mathen, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Weston. Thank you so much. This is so exciting to be back. Yeah, back in town. Uh, how, how, how are things? How are things? Things are good. Moving to New York was crazy. It's only been three months since we've been out there, but it feels like about a decade. But I know that has to do with me being so incredibly busy out there. Yeah, that, that'll do it. And, uh, of course, last but definitely not least, Matt Cummings. How's life? You know, it's going along. We're oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. All right. So, um, yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's get this party started, Mathen. Chalk talk on Opera Box Score. Uh, what is um? So, what have you what have you been up to when you're in New York? Uh, New York's been awesome. So, I haven't been there that long. And while while we've been there, I've been like running around. I spent three weeks in China on an orchestra tour, which was kind of crazy after only being there for three weeks. But basically, I've just been running around, seeing as much opera as I possibly can. You know, here in Chicago, there's a very very specific opera season when you can see things. There's not uh, you know a huge amount of things you can see, even though there's always great things from COT 
from the lyric, from underground opera theater like Chicago Fringe Opera. But in New York, you just like trip over opera all over the place. So I think mm. just in the short time that I've been there, pudding I've, involved? Nope, no pudding. And uh, yeah, it, it's been very appropriate to say the least. Uh, lots of nudity, actually. We can talk about that. Uh, one of the shows that I got to see is. It's sort of an awesome deal. I got to see um, Gregory Spears' fellow travelers at the Prototype Festival. Now, this may show my ignorance, but I had never heard of the Prototype Festival. But it's a yearly festival in New York that focuses on all modern works, modern opera, modern sound art. And their sort of a cornerstone for the season this year was fellow travelers. One of the reasons this might be important to all of our Chicago listeners is right now as we speak, the Lyric Opera's Lyric Unlimited branch is putting this show on. We actually started rehearsals today and that show is going to go up starting on March 17th. So, great, great show. Very interesting, based off the book by Thomas Mallon. And if you're interested, you can grab tickets to that at the Lyric Opera's website. But, Oliver, you would have loved this. Do you know anything about Fellow Travelers? All I know is that it's gay and <laughs> that uh, Marcus Shields is maybe uh, assistant directing that show. Yes. Do you oh. know Marcus? Uh, Marcus was a guest on Opera Now podcast a couple years ago. And is a Northwestern grad. Yeah, we were at Northwestern together, actually. Yeah, and Marcus is one of these like extremely gorgeous guys who is a beautiful artist. And it's not fair that somebody that good looking is that expressive. He and is that so intelligent, also. and so yeah. talented, and so intelligent. Yeah, it's like yeah, I mean, he, it's it's really like you know any one of us on the show right yeah, now, yeah, attractive, yeah, yeah. intelligent. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the audience doesn't know because they're listening. They can't right. see us. No, no. For anyone listening, we are all just ripped. But Marcus <laughs> is one of those people that like if he had any one of those things, like just his looks or just his intelligence or just his artistry, he would be fine. But the fact that he gets to have all of those things at the same time is it feels sort of unfair. So yeah, yeah I got to meet him today he's very very handsome you are correct that's yeah. a little intimidating yeah. but he is also such a sensitive artist very smart but um the show is a, a really interesting show because it's based in the 1950s in washington dc during the the mccarthy era and the lavender scare and when i saw this show at the prototype festival there was some serious male backside nudity oliver Ooh. you would have loved it Ooh. But no, the, the uh, music by Gregory Spears. <laughs> the music by Greg Spears is absolutely amazing. The libretto by Greg Pierce is great, and it's being directed by Kevin Newberry, who is also doing Faust at the Lyric, and he's an incredibly, uh, incredibly intelligent director, sensitive and emotional. It's just a pleasure to work with. But that show was great. Everything that the Prototype Festival did was awesome. But I, I thought it was funny in what George wrote in the introduction, talking about small and storefront opera theater, because I also got to see what Notes at the Met, the George London finals. I got to go to the Richard. Tucker Gala. So not only are we seeing cool, small underground opera happening in warehouses in Brooklyn, but also really cool major stuff. There's just so, so much music. I don't know if York. I'm ready to see an opera with a libretto that's not by Royce Vavrick or Mark Campbell. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, But you saw the George London fight. We, we briefly mentioned that last week. How was Ray Han Davis? Was that name Ray? Rehan, Rehan. Okay, I, I need to make a disclaimer here. I did not get to go to the con the final concert. Oh. I was on my way, and okay. because a dog got on the train tracks between the J Street Station and the York Street Station on the F Line, I was stuck in Brooklyn underground for four hours and mm. couldn't make it to the show. Oh, okay, so you had tickets in New York. York. I, I had That's tickets. Exciting. Actually, my very good friend um, Aaron Short competed in the finals and won one of the smaller prizes. It's nice. it was a, a bunch of amazing singers, but he uh, he was at Manhattan. Manhattan School with Rayhan and said she's absolutely phenomenal and said the concert was stellar. Okay, so without throwing any shade, can you tell us what to look forward to in the Richard Tucker Gala 
which will probably be broadcast sometime soon. I don't know if it's already happened, but it's, it's been on their website, but it usually makes it on the PBS eventually. Yeah, yeah they'll, they'll do it pretty soon. Um, I, I can tell you, I'll throw a little bit of shade and then I'll, I'll give some good things oh. as well. There were lots of amazing singers and there was some really great singing that was also quite boring on stage from some people. Oh. So I will tell you, some of the some of the war horses of our of our time were not that interesting to watch. And I'll tell you the the thing that's always for me is I, I thought this would be a great opportunity to take my wife out. She loves going to see fancy opera and the the really great singers kicking. And she was really not impressed by anyone except for Nadine Sierra, who I think okay. absolutely stole the whole the whole show. I was really excited to get to go and hear uh, Clark Evans sing. He's a, a good friend and an amazing amazing singer he was great um stephanie blythe did a hilarious habanera that was just she was flirting with the first year violin the concertmaster. she was flirting with the audience she was flirting with the conductor it was really cool to see her really let loose and be super sexy and have fun but other than that it was a little bit of a of a snooze fest um who who was it let's see two two of the tenors or no excuse me two of the singers javier Camarena and Bryn turfel both had to cancel because of illness and i think mm. that that showed itself as a weakness his finger um, so I just want to like throw something out there because uh, I'm a, a jerk. Um, <laughs> how do you say this word, Mathan, that's spelled like this? E M P A N A D A. How do you say that word? Wait, what? So I'm gonna spell a word for you. I want to know Ooh, how you how you pronounce it. There is a gauntlet uh, being thrown. E M P A N A D A. Empanada. Okay, good. I'm just just just, <laughs> what, what just, you, just where were just, you going with that all? <laughs> just check. I'm just checking. For those people who speak Spanish, you know why I asked. I just want to just check. Oh, That's did I did I say Javier's last name incorrectly? No, you said you said habanera. It's the habanera. Oh, who cares? <laughs> Everyone who knows their dance rhythms. <laughs> no, it's just like some people who are white and who try to say words in Spanish automatically put an, an uh, a tilde over every n so i just want to make sure that you mm-hmm. you're not doing that so well, Oliver, it, it, i just moved to new york i don't have time to pronounce things correctly <laughs> leave me alone <laughs> and now that i'm a new yorker i don't care anymore it's okay i mean you're on this show i have i've already butchered every single foreign word that i've had to say so far so i think we're all batting 100 tonight uh, i get to i believe i get to say yannick's name later i'm really looking forward to that oh, it's my favorite name to say uh, oh, okay. i've been practicing every Every single day, and I'm still scared to say it. I'm not going to say it until the end of the show, and you okay. can, you can let me know teacher, how it goes. Okay, <laughs> but, but do you mean to say, Mathan, that you are actually in Fellow Travelers? Yeah, um, so I'm understudying in okay. Fellow Travelers here. That's the whole reason I'm back. I'm going to be back for a month. And the, the other performers in this are absolutely amazing. Devin Guthrie, who is singing Mary in the show, I got to see her do it at the Prototype Festival. God, she's so incredibly good. Such a sensitive artist, and her voice is just gorgeous. Plus, I'm covering Will Liverman, who's another oh, wow. um, another sweetheart of Chicago. And man, I had never heard him in person up close before. That man can sing. So are you saying that we're going to see Will, uh, Will Liverman's butt? No, you're not going to see Will Liverman's butt. Ah, okay. shoot. <laughs> Are we going to see your butt? That's the real question. You're not. You're not going to see my butt. Oh, uh, there may be some butts, but I, I do. Word on the street is that this show is not going to be as risque in its use mm. of nudity as the prototype okay. festival one was. Less but butts. We'll, yeah. we'll have to see. So if you want to see butts, you got to go to New York. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean that's how, that's how it is. You know, in Chicago, you, there's not enough butts here. That's no one, why no I moved one has there. butts. I moved for the butts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, I think we're going to go ahead and roll on into the next segment because we got quite 
quite a segment coming up for you. It's time to snuggle up and get cozy. Oh get it? God. Like, oh, oh yeah, okay, gosh. okay. George wrote that. <laughs> I didn't write that. It's fine. It's fine. Fantasy Fockball is up next, only on Opera Box Score on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Who's on your team? Time for Fantasy Fockball. And it's only on Opera Box Score. That's right, it's time for Fantasy Fockball. And you listeners of the show know what that means. But if not, if you're just tuning in and you're like, what are they saying right now? Is that allowed to say on the air? Oliver, would you explain that a little bit, Fockball? Well, um, for many years, I've been, uh, I'm, in the, I'm an old-time podcaster oh yeah, yeah podcast oh, yeah. i've been in the game for a long time it's a it's an old man's game <laughs> and um yeah i've always wanted to i mean i have before but i've always wanted to like create like ideal casts for um various operas and like if you could create your own recording or your own performance uh from record performances that are in your mind or performance that you've seen or performance that are documented uh, on recording who would you cast you know in in your in your team you know is that my explaining that right for fantasy league? <laughs> I, is that is that how people play fantasy league football? No, I, but close. Enough. Okay, for the that, for the but... longest time, I thought fantasy football was like orcs and elves, okay. you know, playing football. <laughs> okay, that so I that sounds play. that's yeah, that sounds pretty great, right? But uh, unfortunately, we can't cast orcs or elves in our mm. operas. So Oliver, what have you got for us for this particular so, round? For this particular version of the fantasy football, I thought since lyric opera is doing my favorite opera, Cosi Fantute. Uh, that we would listen to a little bit of Cozy. Uh, and because Cozy really is an ensemble opera, it's not, I mean, there are amazing solo moments in it, but the opera really, the sex, success of the opera depends on the ensemble singing. Mm. That we do one of the most well known duets from the show, which is the first act duet of the sisters, Fridoligi and Dorabella. And so I'm going to go head to head. Uh, with Math in here, with my team, no, with Try with again. Matthew, there you go. so many so many M's over there, with with Matt Cummings, uh, and I will let him set up his clip. But we're we've both chosen uh, more historical performances, and by mm. historical I mean pre nineteen ninety. Uh, <laughs> ancient, and there's definitely ancient. there's definitely a tendency in. Yeah. Uh, really until the last couple of decades to do Mozart big and smooth and yeah. basically right, like right. it's like yeah. it's Verdi or even Wagner sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I've chosen a clip from uh, 1950 at Glyndebourne, and this one is not too lugubrious, okay. uh, but it features one of my favorite singers of all time, uh, Zena Juranac, who was a Croatian soprano from uh born in 1921 she just died seven years ago uh she had a huge career singing all over europe but she wasn't nearly recorded as much as people like uh lisa della casa or ermgard seyfried or uh, elizabeth schwarzkopf who were kind of her peers in the mid uh that that middle european 
sort of sound where they were from Central Europe and they sang in all the big German houses and just made the rounds of Mozart and Wagner and Ver- Verdi and really doing a li- just a little bit of everything. So before we hear the first couple, so I want to explain how this is set up. We're going to first hear the Fjordaligi entrance and then we'll take a break and then we'll listen to the Dorabella entrance. Mm. But uh, just for those people who are not familiar with Cozy, uh, this is late career Mozart, one might say, even though he died young, so who knows what his late career would have really been like. But uh, as far as operas go, uh, this feels like maybe like the fantasy for piano and C minor, whatever that piece is. You know, like it's very <laughs> really the, nailing the accuracy. Yeah, yeah, on even this though one. the form is very clear because it's still Mozart, there's something about Cozy that really explores form, mm. and also there's a lot of stop and go in this opera, which is unlike anything else that's ever written. There's like a lot of like moments for like cadenzas and um, we, we call the little symbol, the fermata where, you know, like the, the singers allowed to sing a passage in their own time, which is very unusual for Mozart. So uh, this duet is rife with those uh, kind of structureless moments. So to keep it fair, uh, Matt and I both chose live performances because it's actually very easy to, or there's lots of studio recordings that sound perfect because mm-hmm. Mozart requires perfection. It's easy to go back into the studio and to re-record some passage or to even out tone quality or whatever. But the live recording really does show. That's really what separates the yeah the the girls from the ladies. Yeah, yeah. there it is. There because it is. Thanks. This, this music is so hard, and you have to make it sound elegant. And uh, I've heard so many performances in the theater that just did not live up to my expectation of what I know this music can be when it's executed really beautifully. And I'll let Matt talk about his performance, which I thought was actually very great. Uh, but my yes. singer is uh, Kiri Takanawa, ah. who is a celebrated Mozartian. And one might accuse of being a sort of a boring singer who's only worried about her technique. But there are some roles that she does which, where she was clearly coached very well and there's a lot of expression in what Kiri just did and a lot of use of the language and a lot of air coming through the sound, which in a way is appropriate here. Her tone goes a little bit sharp in the first uh, kind of ornamental passage going up the scale, 
but I thought her language and her tone were just so exquisite in this. What I really, what what turned me on about Jordanatsis' performance right away is from the very first note, you get that clear, limpid, pure tone. And it stays really consistent, even as she uses a little bit of varied shading. Maybe not quite as much as Takanawa did there. It's a little, it, uh, it's pretty consistent, but in in the best possible way. That it always feels pure. You're never worried about it. Uh, and even within that purity of tone, she's still able to add really subtle shadings to the lines and to the text with the with those uh, nice doubled L's. Yeah. That really, mm. the way she kind of sets them down in okay. front of you. Well, now here come the claws. So um, I, I love your knots, but I feel like she plays her voice so forward that she didn't actually have that many color options because she wanted it to be almost instrumental in its accuracy of pitch. Shots fired. Yeah, but her pitch was amazing. And that's it. it was Shots retracted. And if I'm going to if I'm going to return the fire just a little bit, <laughs> I'm going to say that uh, Takanoa definitely sang this a little bit uh, as though it were a a later composer, there were some extra musical slides into those first couple <laughs> phrases that just uh, felt a little indulgent to me in, in what I'm in what I'm looking for. Okay, well, I actually in in cozy, I enjoy a little bit of limpid attention to to rhythm. I feel like it can stretch a little bit. Um, just this opera, not all of his operas, but this opera can stretch a little bit. So there were some. There were some added pitches in there, too. <laughs> okay. All right. So my mezzo-soprano, which we'll hear actually second, uh, is going to be Agnes Balza, uh, who is a spicy, spicy singer and is so different than Kiri Takanwa. She's like a passionate singer. And Dorabella is the more, you know, um, impulsive of the two sisters. So I feel like it was really genius casting. How about you? Well, I feel like, I, just to say something about Agnes Balza, I feel like, she, whenever she's singing, it sounds like she could burst into fire at any minute. That's just that. That's just the sound that you get from her. Uh, the doorbell on my recording is Blanche Thiebaum, who was an American, uh, Swedish-American mezzo-soprano, who was not. She had a really great career and a solid career, mostly singing at the Met as a as a house mezzo. Uh, didn't really make it into the upper echelon of singers, and she maybe is not the greatest mezzo-soprano of all time, but she has a a good solid voice and she uses it well. Yeah, I mean she would be considered a journeyman, you know, mezzo in her time, but if if she was singing now, she'd be one of the best <laughs> in, mm. in the house, so.
I'll let you start. So <laughs> I think Agnes Balza is a phenomenally exciting singer. I think that this is probably going to be her weakest area of the opera because you're not getting that full-on Dorabella explosion. And I've listened to her other parts of her singing this on, on this recording, and it's much better uh, in terms of uh, accuracy and... <laughs> <laughs> and the way that she, uh, there, I don't know of many singers who are as unafraid of chest voice as Agnes Balza. Yeah. And when she's throwing a temper tantrum as Dorabella, it's so exciting and visceral in a way that you don't usually get Mozart singing. Mm-hmm. But here, the the phrases are written so that they sound the same because I don't think that I think that you're kind of giving away the 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 twist a little bit. When we're presented to these sisters, we're supposed to think that they are of one mind, that they are just two women they're both looking at their lockets a lot of times it's staged with them being doing the same motions or being mirror images of each other and i think that even though blanche thebaum is maybe not the most exciting singer of all time what she did do really well was sing in concert with urinats i have to agree with you there um i think that this is probably balsa's weakest moment in the show because she's being chased and she's actually doing something. She's manipulating her sound to sound more Mozartian, quote unquote, you know, like polite. And uh, that's not her, you know, <laughs> no. and you could hear you could hear that like she's not comfortable doing it. And she almost puts her voice in her nose and the, the tone goes a little bit sharp sometimes because she's not singing with her full voice. You know, she uses straight tone a lot as a way to kind of intensify her that yeah. that fire inside. And it. In this music, it feels out of place in a way it doesn't so much in the aria. That's yeah. a, a, a couple scenes later. Yes. Uh, but Thebom was uh, also just, she just got the job done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're going we're gonna to jump ahead to the uh, dual cadenzas, which are very, very hard to sing and time them correctly. Uh, because you want to be expressive, and these are cadenzas, so they should have a shape, you know, and they shouldn't be rhythmically exact. And so somebody has to make the decision how these things are going to go. And it's best if you both have the same brain and you just sing them the same way. But somebody's going to take the lead. And let's see uh, if we get these uh, women to sing uh, in harmony. Super interesting to me because they both had problems. Yeah, uh, but it, not the same problem. I know. Yeah. So, so Sena Yurinats and Blanche Thiebaum were synchronized for the first cadenza, and then they fell apart in the second one. Yeah. And the opposite happened. Kira Takanawa and Agnes Balsa were not aligned at the beginning, but they eventually They got found out. each other. Yeah. 
Um, so that was super interesting. And I thought that Agnes Balsa, because her tone quality is so exotic, you know, that she dominates at first, you know, because Kiri Takano was trying to do something sweet and somewhat off the voice. And Balsa's vibrato is just there flapping away. And <laughs> it, it, it's not a beautiful harmony, but it's more interesting to listen to. They and I, I'll give it to to them that their their second cadenza felt so much more intended. Like they had an idea that they were going for instead of just here are a bunch of thirty second and sixteenth notes yeah. that we have to sing together on the same vowel and it's a technical exercise. Yeah. So Mozart in uh, the kind of stretta of this aria um, demonstrates constancy or uses a held note as a metaphor for constancy. So uh, they both get to sing a, I don't know, maybe three bars of a, of a held note while the other singer does arpeggios around it. And uh, it is a test to see how well you measure the breath and what you can do with that note. So once again, we're starting with Sarah Uranuts and Blanche Thiebaum, and we'll go to the Conroe recording. let you take this Matt, and then i have something to say so i w- listening to that little coda uh with my my recording what i really l- like about it in particular are the ways that they do a similar thing with their phrasing but not exactly the same you uh they both they both do a big mezzo de voce where it starts kind of small and opens up and then comes back to a more delicate thing uh but being different parts in the range it has a different effect but what was re- what was particularly striking to me on top of that was the how smoothly Yorinats and Thibum both handled the leaps there. Uh, it really felt like those octave leaps were in exactly the same place. There was no kind of gear shift. There was no lurch. It was just, oh, here, here's the first note I'm singing, and there's the second one. And it's effortless. That is an ideal in this type of music, to make those uh, 
you know, register shifts sound seamless. Uh, but there's also something exciting about showing a little bit what's under the hood, you know? Um, <laughs> and I would say that kudos to Santa Yoranats for singing it on one breath. She's the only one that did it one breath. Yeah. Everybody else took a sneak breath somewhere. Um, but they also went a little bit faster. Yes. Um, I just love that uh, Takanawa will put in uh, portamentos, like you know, in Mozart. I think Mozart can be portamentoed. I think that people get sometimes too instrumental with Mozart singing, and people get bound up, and it sounds gutless. It sounds like bloodless when they do it. And Takanawa just adds so much operatic quality to the Mozart. And like even in the end, you know, Colin Davis is like racing along to get to the finish, <laughs> and she slows it down just ever so slightly in the last phrase. You know, uh, like the in the in the actual cadence. You know, uh, definitely a riskier performance, but I don't know if all of them paid off in the same way. The uh, Agnes Balza holding on to that E for for a while. It definitely it it curdled a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> and that that's the risk you take when you have when you sing that just like wide open and yeah. blazing a trail down yeah. down the highway. All right, so we'll now we'll take it, turn it over to Mathen and Weston. To the judges' deliberation <laughs> going on here. Um, I mean, there's a there's a lot to be said for both recordings, uh, for for both sets of singers for sure. Um, I, I, I think the, my, my, sort of my gut instinct is to side with anything with Kiri Takanawa because I love Kiri, but I, I do think that there's, there's, whenever I listen to Mozart, I always, I, I don't, I don't want to be hearing, you know, I don't want to be hearing that sort of that superhuman, um, operatic voice I, I i feel like the the other options feel a little more human to me and that's what i look for particularly for an opera like cosi um there's 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 something to be said for uh just the sense of having real people on the stage talking uh and you know at a certain point you know there, there's there, there's phrasing there's there's the all of those rhythmic choices, but at the end of the day, just their vocal quality seems to me a little more human than um, Kiri and. Uh, so you're saying that Kiri and Agnes sing too operatically. Yes, that- for 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 Kosi, for 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 Mozart. There's there's uh, with, I mean obviously there are exceptions for certain characters in various Mozart operas, um, but particularly in the in the comedies uh, where there's no magic happening i think that that i think that that's what i tend to prefer okay um mathen yeah weston i like agree with everything you're saying but also not your conclusion (laughs) 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 i i I completely agree and it's it's sort of interesting because we have a philosophical question when we're talking about these two specific recordings and i will remind all the listeners at home that when we play this game we are getting a glimpse of one piece of one performance of one evening absolutely and there's so much involved in all of that. But when, when we're talking about what, what you've been bringing up, Weston, what we're talking about is the f- philosophical differences of what do you want. Do you want well-tempered, mean beauty of, of the mathematical kinds of perception that we get in some of Mozart's writing? Or do you want that to be ensconced in a humanity that is 
filled with blood and fire and passion. I, I could not agree with you more about that, but when I hear the the first recording, when I hear Matt's recording, I do hear more of that, that mathematical perfection without hmm. the fire. And where that really shows up is in the, uh, the cadenzas and the ornamentation that's happening with the two singers together. It's very easy to take tone quality of voice and look at those individual things, but the real crucible for where this kind of magic happens is in how well the minds are melding and where the hearts are either together or not. About five years ago, I got to see um, Renee Fleming and Susan Graham do this in concert, and it was the first time I had ever seen this duet move in three dimensions, where not only is time slowing and speeding up together, but also you have ornamented dynamics moving together, which we get a lot of that kind of magic from Kiri Takanoa and from Agnes Balta. And I especially love the kinds of the kinds of play they have with time, where Kiri Takanoa has maybe inelegant ornamentation at time with her 16th notes, but man does it have fire, and it still moves together. I love their teamwork more than the other ladies. They do have a good, I do I do think that they, they do have a very good uh, vocal chemistry uh, going on that the other two maybe don't quite have. But I, I still think that if I was if I if I was going back in time and seeing those performances, I think I would would prefer the other one. Um, so just to put, let's, let's just say we, we're calling it a draw because we have a yeah, split decision yeah. here. Uh, I own personally like thirteen recordings of this opera, and, and of, of course, course there's and there's Spotify. <laughs> I think I'm at twenty one. <laughs> oh my gosh! The, and there's Spotify, so you can like listen to more than that. And uh, I wish we could actually listen to some studio recordings of this duet because then you can really hear some ideas, you know, mm. executed the way they want them to be preserved. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, one of the best versions of this, of this duet are two singers you would never expect to sound good in it. And that's uh, Lanteen Price and Tatiana Troianos and the Eric Leinsdorf recording from oh. like the 60s. Oh, that has to 70s. be amazing. Yeah. It's a tsunami of vibrato, but, I, it, is, I, I but it is so expressive. It's really, huh. really, yeah. And like Lanteen Price was a Mozartian. She knew how to sing Mozart, but oh, yeah. she could not hide her voice. I mean, her voice was no. her voice. You know? And same with Troianos. Troianos was a really great stylist, but just... Also kind of spicy. A similar... Vibrato yeah. for days. I, like, do, yeah. I do like a spicy Mozart singer. Just <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the beauty of all of this yeah. stuff. You get, you know, you got vanilla over here you got chocolate you got rocky road you got uh what? You got your jalapeno ice cream yeah, That's exactly it's all still ice cream and it's all still delicious oh well i think this that's a great transition to the into uh the next little break here you're listening to uh ice cream box score <laughs> uh <laughs> okay but seriously we got to go into this uh promo so again to the two minute drill uh and on there you'll be listening to some surprising opera news from oklahoma this week Find out what that's next on America's talk radio show about opera, period, only on WNUR FM, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. 
It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash pop-up on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number, 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847-866-9687. Talk to you later. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time for everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land in less than two minutes. Next season, Tulsa Opera is stepping up its commitment to casting without regard to ethnicity, gender, or sexual orientation in a season the U.S. operatic debut of female baritone Lucia Lucas, a transgender woman. Lucas will sing the title role in Mozart's Don Giovanni. The Paris Opera usually invites only journalists to see the news conferences where it unveils its coming plans. But last month, it announced that a boldly a boldly ambitious 2018-2019 season, the company brought in 200 people under the age of 28 to the event. This was not just for show. It was a dramatic way of highlighting the Paris Opera's extraordinary success in attracting younger audiences. Russell Platt recently wrote in The New Yorker about Yannick Nézé-Sagan's appointment to the new music director at the Metropolitan Opera. Quote, Like many ambitious conductors, Nézé-Sagan seems to be too busy. The Met, the Philly Orchestra, and the Orchestre Metropolitain all at once? Perhaps Nézé-Sagan is just a superior physical specimen, but in the several times I've observed this man, I've always come to the same conclusion— If he wants to join the ranks of the historically great conductors, he will have to spend more time with less music. Saudi Arabia says construction will soon begin on the first opera house in the kingdom, where concerts have been banned for two decades. The opera house will be built in the Red City Sea of Jidda on the kingdom's western coast. On the disabled list this week, Thomas Hampson has withdrawn from the Bavarian State Opera's production of Mozart's Cosi Fan Tutte next month. His replacement is Luca Titoto. Also out at Munich is Isabel Leonard, who is meant to be singing Angelina in Rossini's Cenerentola. Her substitute is Margarita Gritskova. Rolando Viazon has pulled out of the Vienna State Opera's version of Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin for health reasons. His role will be taken over by the Czech tenor Pavel Chern- uh, Chernuch. Apologies for the pronunciation there. And on this day, February 26th, it was the premiere of Josef Haydn's opera Armida in Esterhaza in 1784. And that, my friends was your two-minute drill. This is America's talk radio show about opera with George Cedarquest, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. And we're back. So who's got a good hot take for me on any of those stories? Well, I'll, I'll just jump in and say that I could tell that that was George's script because <laughs> he really must have loved that New Yorker article about Nizes again because that's his complaint often about... Uh, you know, any particular musician getting all the jobs. Right, uh, right. I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that if the quality is high all the time. And so far, Nazes again, has, has demonstrated, you know, that at least when I've seen him conduct things at the Met, that he's in it, you know, that he's, it's, he's, he's there and he's putting his stamp on it and it's not, he's not phoning anything yet. Yeah, you know? And may uh, I just say, I pronounced his last name like three times. Yeah. You did great. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was so proud of myself. Oliver gave you a condescending nod of approval. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I have to say this article struck me as more 
uh, people complaining about changing the guard, old man yells at cloud kind of thing, mm -hmm. where, you know, just because it's different does not necessarily mean that it's wrong. People get very, when you have such a strong recorded tradition of opera that we all go back to, I mean, this is coming from someone who just did a segment comparing nitpicking <laughs> of two performances, but uh, there's more than one way to skin a cat here. And just because this reviewer really likes the way James Levine used to conduct Parsifal, it doesn't mean it's the only way to do it. And it doesn't even mean it's the best way to do it right. necessarily because there is no best way. And James Levine really has not been conducting for like the past 10 years. I mean, like his his physical ailments have prevented him from really, I think, leading that orchestra. True. I, I would even say, though, that, uh, I mean, uh, uh, sexual scandal aside, I, I was... I, I was never particularly impressed by James Levine as one of the quote great composer, uh, great conductors rather. Oh, honey. Uh, I mean, he's uh, the I, well. I, most of what I know of him, uh, I do compare a lot uh, when I'm listening to recordings. I listen to you know the the Wagner particularly, and I, and uh, 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 and you know the the late German stuff. And I just don't think he quite clicked like a lot of the other, uh, like uh, say Abato or. Um, or uh, certainly uh, George Schulte or people like that. There, there. It was a very, uh, I think, American it, approach to the music, and it, I don't think it really translated. It's definitely the party line that he was the Wagnerian of his, definitely of his, of his American. All right, but Nathan, what right. do you have to say about that? Well, the, I, I will. I'll say a couple of things. First off, this article infuriated me to no end because it's the worst kind of music journalism that says nothing while trying to establish your own like power in terms of understanding music and tries to set yourself up as the only person who understood what was happening and that does nothing for the art form and does nothing for the the patrons or the people trying to love this thing and it makes me so angry when people try to do <laughs> yeah, this kind of stuff so angry well but the <laughs> But all of that emotion aside, I, I cannot remember. Who, do you remember the music critic's name who wrote this? Uh, I have it right here. It, it, it was Russell Platt. Russell Platt. Platt. Like, what he did here is he took a young conductor and judged a young man at the beginning of his career against the ghosts of all history Absolutely. and expected him to be as good as those people. I've sung in choruses with Jaap van Sweden, with Ricardo Muti, with James Levine on three different occasions, and you cannot judge a person's career before it has started at the end of a Giants. That's that does nothing for anyone, and it makes me very angry. That's I agree with you on that, but there are conductors who, when they were Yannick Nzeksegan's age, were already established icons, like Ricardo Muti, for example. But you, know? you don't think Nzeksegan is already an established icon? Um, I think he's amazing, but I'm not sure that he has people know what he's all about yet. Like, I think when you hear a performance, you say, oh, that's definitely Nazes again conducting, you know? I can he, agree with you. I understand what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, he hasn't yeah. been marinating long enough. For, and there's so obviously, we're now in an era where there's so much to listen to that we don't have just our phonograph at home. We listen to the same record over and over again. So we could say, oh, that's Muti because mm -hmm. of this, you know? That's uh, Karyon because of this. Nazesaga needs time to establish what those things are, you know? Yeah, and I, I think we also are all running into the problem of just, you know, not a lot of uh, recordings in this particular era. Um, we're just kind of in a, particularly studio recordings, we're, we're, we don't really have a basis of comparison unless you are really, really in the circle of going around and listening to all of these uh, conductors. And, uh, and that, that being said, I think, I think uh, Nazesaga is an, 
excellent choice uh, to lead the Met, and I think he's going to do a fantastic yeah. job. But we're so. we're actually not talking a lot about, sorry, we're not talking a lot about conductors when we talk about an opera season. Like, we're not saying, well, I want to go right. see That's this true. show because well, Jose Sagan is conducting. I, I, I kind of do. I, I kind of do. I mean, I, as the only non-singer here, I do, I do personally actually often do that. I do... I tend to connect a little bit more readily with whoever's conducting compared to uh, the singers. Or the stage director or the uh, production? Not the stage director so much, but sometimes the production. Um, but I, I do really like, well, it does particularly lend itself to my particular area of expertise, which is the early tw 20th century stuff, you know, the big hypermassive um, pre-war orchestras that mm -hmm. do require a lot of reining in and control at the top. Um, Traffic cop directing. Yeah, exactly. What were you about to say, Matt? <laughs> well, I, I I appreciate more than anything his energy, and I think that that is something that they def that they the Met and classical music in general desperately needs at this time. And the fact that they're moving up the start date of his tenure to me seems like a great idea. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, there's really, I mean, you you can train uh, semi on the job for two years, but there's no time like the present to no, really get absolutely going. Absolutely not. And sometimes we don't need demigods behind the podium or on the stage. Sometimes it is really nice to see real people who understand what real people want to see give it to them. I, I will say one of the things about like people like James Levine or Ricardo Muti is sometimes you you hear them talk and it feels like they're on a whole different plane and that they even though they understand the intentions of the music so well, maybe they don't understand the the plight of the normal person who mm. wants to get into opera. And I I have high hopes for Nézé Seguin to see if he can bridge that gap and have it be a little more a little less elitist and a little more for the people and as, as speaking of, of for the people some big changes uh with the casting in tulsa um of the casting of the first the uh, u.s operatic debut of lucia lucas transgender yeah, woman in john giovanni this article is not very well written it's not it's, it's not. not really it's clear. not exactly clear what's happening yeah so let's say the same thing. we can say <laughs> is that lucia luca is a transgender woman who still has a baritone voice yes mm -hmm. um and is performing the role of don giovanni but to my knowledge that's as uh subversive as they're getting there they're not like doing a play on gender with the role per se i don't know maybe they are but I don't see them as doing that, not from this article. No, I think that's actually quite accurate. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I, I know of Lucia decently well. She studied with my voice teacher when she was here in Chicago with Richard Stilwell. Um, and in Germany, she, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, she has been playing male baritones as, as male while living um, you know, while being a woman. Mm. Um, and so it's going to be really interesting to see how they deal with those situations and how, how Tulsa wants to, to push that, what direction they want to push it in. But bravo to them. Yeah, I, I think it's... Oh, bravo. Bravo oh, to yeah, them. Absolutely. To you, you, oh, how about bravex? <laughs> bravex. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the, the new one. Yeah, that, that'll be great. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's fantastic. We're going to be seeing a lot more of this. It's inevitable. And I think it's great to have... This this first step, I'm kind of I, I was kind of reading. I was kind of like, well, I, I I'm kind of surprised that this is such a. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, it's it's a big deal for her because it's her U.S. debut. But I was kind of surprised that it was just the debut. And well, opera tends to be a conservative art form. True. In every like in politically, in terms of art movements, in terms of staging things like that, you still do things in opera that you would never do in straight theater. And for me. I am a little bit heart. I'm heartened by this because they're not just pretending that a problem doesn't exist, which is sort of what the opera world tends to do about yeah. things like yeah. you know, ra 
face or blackface or all of those problems that really need to be worked out. And Tulsa is being proactive, so good on them. They're also taking a very safe opera choice yes and making it interesting and maybe drawing attention to you know their themselves by this casting decision yeah and i think having i i I mean i don't know i don't think this is what they're going to do but having don giovanni as a trans woman i think would be a fascinating take on that character in general i mean i think i I can't think of a a, i mean that just when i read that i was like oh that would be that would be fantastic next year in stuttgart (laughs) he's the the, don giovanni's like the poster child for toxic masculinity exactly so how interesting would that be that would be utterly fascinating i hope they do it if not in this production hopefully in a future production um good luck to her absolutely um, uh, just uh, just real quick, also some progress, uh, some some good things happening for the Paris Opera. I have some stats right here in front of me. Uh, and uh, last season, there were 95,000 audience members younger than 28 years old. Um, uh, the average age of an audience member, an opera audience member in Paris is uh, 45 compared with 58 at the Met and 54 at the Staatsoper in Berlin, um, which I think is really kind of interesting. And I, I've I've been to the Paris Opera, and they do seem to be doing a lot of outreach to the youths like me, being the young whippersnapper. And I really connect to the the the, the hipness of it. Um, but I think it's I think it's I think showing it off like that struck me as maybe a little a little tacky for want of a better word you know inviting all the young people but but on the other hand what i found you know from talking to people at my muggle job my day job (laughs) is uh a lot of times people just assume that opera is not for them because they don't know anything about it and they're and the more you talk about it and make it accessible to people that that does a lot of the work for you and it, not not everything, obviously, because if it were that simple, it would be obvious. But so many people just count themselves out before the beginning of the ballgame. And the fact that they have decided to take more than one step to make sure that that doesn't happen with young audiences is, I, th- I think, part of why we're seeing a difference. Yeah, so, and the stats definitely speak for themselves. I mean, certainly they need to keep up what they're doing and maybe serve as a model for certain companies in the U.S. with the cough, cough, and the honestly, nobody has a solution <laughs> if we did... Every company would be doing it. We're all just trying to figure it out. Yeah. What what is gonna what do we have to do to keep this thing alive, to keep the ball floating in the air, you know? And uh, I think that's what we're doing here on Opera Box Score. And on that note, I'm gonna wrap it up for tonight because we are out of time here in the studio. That is it for this week's edition of uh, Opera Box Score. Thank you for listening along with us tonight. Uh, the general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings and Methan Black, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera now that winter is over. Probably. We're back on Monday, March 5th at 9 p.m. Central with more opera news and hot takes. Join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.